Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. Favorite dish your mom and dad each made? On my dad's side, it was, I would say, a joint effort by my dad and my grandmother, but she made the most amazing wontons and wonton soup. And uh, on my mom's side, a lot of tamales. So I'm half Mexican and half Chinese. So I got, I grew up with a, a great exotic menu of, of things. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today in the CMO podcast is Nathaniel Rue, the chief brand officer and co-founder of Sweetgreen, the fast casual restaurant chain that serves creative, healthy salads. Nathaniel founded the company in 2007 in Washington, D.C. with two classmates from Georgetown University. Fast forward to today, 16 years later, the three are still running the company, now with about 200 restaurants and 5,000 associates. In 2021, Sweetgreen went public with a market cap at the time of this recording of roughly $1 billion. My guest Nathaniel was born and raised in Los Angeles, the son of immigrant entrepreneurial parents. His mother has Mexican heritage and his father Chinese. Nathaniel graduated from Georgetown University, and within three months, with his co-founders, he had opened the first Sweet Green on M Street in Georgetown. This is my conversation with a guy who believes in the power of being naive. Here's Nathaniel Rue. Well, Nathaniel, welcome to the CMO Podcast. I don't know if you're aware of this, but your restaurant has been a key player in this show. When I first started, before the pandemic, everything we did was in person, every episode, every recording, and we did them in Hudson Yards. You have a great restaurant in Hudson Yards, and every day I had lunch there. I loved your Harvest Bowl, the avocado with greens, so every podcast to me has a sweet green feeling. So thank you for nourishing the show. No, thank you for the kind words and for being a longtime customer. If I can ask, what's your go-to sweet green order? It's probably the Harvest Bowl. You know, it's kind of hearty, kind of healthy. But honestly, I don't think there's uh it's not a bad one in the lot. I go through phases. So Harvest Bowl is definitely up there for me as well. More of a fall thing maybe, but you know, <laughs> it's good. But you know, I have a niece who graduated from Georgetown, I don't know, maybe five or six years after you. And when I told her I was talking to you, she was, oh my God, I remember that store on M Street. And she talked about the, the strawberry mint <laughs> frozen yeah. yogurt. They used to yeah. go there for that. So another another fan, by the way. Thank you. So last week, this is kind of well-timed, we're talking now, you and your company were featured in a big story in Bloomberg Business Week. So, and I read it, it was fascinating. So how did that come about? What was the kind of catalyst for that story? Innovation has always been part of our DNA at Sweetgreen. And one of our kind of core principles here is how we kind of see around the corner when it comes to the industry. And so we actually had met the founders of this company called Spice Kitchen, which was based in Boston. Uh, four students, essentially MIT, they were hardware engineers. And they, had a, they shared actually a very similar story. 
to us as founders at Sweetgreen, where uh, their mission was to figure out a way to make healthy eating more accessible, but by using automation and leveraging robotics. And so they opened two restaurants in the Boston area, one in downtown Crossing and one in Harvard Square. And we've just always been, we're always impressed with the way they approach their business and also just like the level of humility and partnership that the four of them had. And during COVID, we started talking a little bit more and, and decided to acquire the Spice Kitchen and fold them into to Sweet Green, really with the vision of how do we continue our mission together um, and provide more uh, healthy food in, in a more accessible way. And so for the last, call it year and a half, we've been working with the team at Spice to take the technology they built and we're, we call it the Infinite Kitchen. It's essentially uh, automated assembly line that goes into our restaurants. And we've spent the last year and a half kind of tweaking it, remixing it, designing it for our menu uh, at Sweet Green. And we actually launched the first pilot store a few weeks ago, just outside Chicago. So far, we've been really pleased with the first few weeks. It's still very early, but the the main principles and the main goals of the machine are one to actually, it's one is really around consistency, right? How do we make food in a way that is more consistent and at at the same quality or better that you would get in existing units. One of our biggest complaints at Sweet Green is sometimes we miss a dressing or we miss a protein and accuracy is something that we've been really trying to work on. And the Infinite Kitchen really helps that. Uh, the second thing is, how do we create an experience that is even more convenient? So uh, faster and higher throughput and really thinking about speed of service as a big core tenant. And then the last one, it, it, it almost sounds counterintuitive when you think about automation or robotics, but how do you make the store experience even more focused on hospitality? So what we've done is with the labor savings that we've saved in the back of house, we've actually added two roles, in, we call them hosts uh, in the front of house that are really there to kind of greet you, walk you through the store experience, tell you about the seasonal menus if you want that information and kind of just be a guide for the overall experience. And so, so far it's been uh, a great pilot and a lot to learn going forward. What was the reaction to the store in, in Bloomberg? I thought it was overall good. You know, we've known Liz, uh, the mm -hmm. journalist who wrote the piece for a while. And um, I personally toured her around the space, kind of walked her through it. And, and I think the reaction was more that this is definitely something that's forward thinking in the industry. I think it's Definitely, we're billing it as a pilot, so it's not we're not yeah. trying to overpromise anything. But I think just focusing on what are the things that are going to move the industry, and how can companies like Sweetgreen and others leverage automation in a way that is a win for the customer and a win for the team member. On the day we're recording today, we dropped uh, an episode with Jay Livingston at Shake Shack. Yeah, I know Jay really well. And you know, there's a lot of uh, similar principles and themes and in your two companies. And it was, it's, it, you probably haven't listened to it yet. It's only a few hours old, but it's a lovely episode. He's a lovely guy. And, uh, and I've long admired Danny Meyer and almost anything he touches. So it's nice. I'm interviewing you after him. This is going to be really fun. <laughs> a, a bunch of food CMOs, you know, growing up uh, when we were starting the company, setting the table by Danny Meyer was a yeah. huge inspiration for us and how we thought about experience design and and him as a mentor has been uh, incredibly helpful. And then what Jay and Randy are doing at Shake Shack is also really inspiring to watch. You know, the way they've built community around their restaurants and some of the more 
culinary forward innovations they've done have been really cool to see. Now, I've learned a lot about you in my research before the show, and there are two big themes in your life, right? Food and music. Yes. So I want to start there with a little bit of a lightning round. The first one is your favorite live concert ever. Favorite live concert ever is probably the first show I saw. It was Rage Against the Machine uh, in a, here in L.A. Uh, it was <laughs> back in the day, um, but it was definitely the power of sound and the power of live music it was the kind of like the, my first experience with that. Uh, and it, it definitely, definitely is memorable. I'm going to super date myself. One of my most memorable was Bruce Springsteen before he was Bruce Springsteen playing at Georgetown <laughs> University in McDonough. Wow. Gym. He was in McDonough with no breaks. That is epic. Three or four hour show. Oh man, you know, wow. It's, it, it's in my top two or three. The first dance song at your wedding. Um, Can We Pretend by Bill Weathers. Oh, nice. How has your music taste shifted since your days at Georgetown? You know, it's it's a little all over the place. I would say I've gotten more into, I don't know, disco music as I've gotten older. I feel like just the power of community and our friends and, and electronic music and disco music has been a big force in my life recently. Favorite dish your mom and dad each made? I would say um, on my dad's side, it was, I would say, a joint effort by my dad, my grandmother, but she made the most amazing wontons and wonton soup. And uh, on my mom's side, a lot of tamales. So I'm half Mexican and half Chinese. So I got, I grew up with a, a great exotic menu of, of things. Your go to order at Sweetgreen. Okay. So right now I'm doing custom kale, wild rice, blackened chicken. I do avocado, carrots, cabbage, zatar breadcrumbs, half green goddess, half miso dressing. Oh, I'm not sure this should be custom. I think this might this should be a dish. <laughs> it's in there somewhere. And your favorite restaurant when not at Sweetgreen? I'm really into the Four Horsemen. It's a restaurant in Brooklyn. Uh, it's a great kind of wine bar and has amazing, amazing food. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. All right. Now I've talked to about 270 CMOs in the show and your role, I think, is the most unusual, right? You're the chief brand officer, you're a co-founder, and you're, of course, on the senior leadership team, and you are a board member of a publicly traded enterprise. Plus, you seem to be a pretty active mentor for young people inside and outside your company. So of all these hats you wear, Nathaniel, how do you decide where to spend your time? You know, I, I ask myself that question a lot. I really try to focus my time on three main things. The first is, I would call like team and hiring. Spent a lot of time making sure that team culture, morale, and just the overall rhythm of how we work together is at the highest quality. And I'm also very involved in every single new hire that we make on the marketing and brand team. Uh, two, uh, I would say, really around, I would call it brand strategy and campaign building. So the way we tell our story 
from the smallest moments to the biggest campaigns and how they all connect to each other is something that I spent a lot of my time on. And honestly, a lot of uh, us as founders, we connect on that regularly. Um, I, I, t- I believe that brand is built one drop at a time. It's in uh, every little thing you do, mm-hmm. whether it's a social post or a large out-of-home campaign um, adds to it. And then the third thing that I, I really focus on is, is spending time with our culinary team and our product team and understanding kind of the work that they're creating. And we have a food lab here in LA and how that connects to some of the insights we're seeing from the consumer and then how we can create really great creative against that. And that's the majority of how I spend my time. What interesting insights are you seeing these days from the consumer? One, there's a lot of interesting insights around return to office and how people are moving around. Sweet Green, as you know, was back in your days at, you know, in, uh, in New York, is, it was heavily corporate. And you know, that lunchtime, Monday through Friday, Friday workforce. And when COVID happened, that all kind of moved around. And as the lights are turning back on, um, we're seeing some return to office, a lot of uh, a lot of people working from home, but also using Sweetgreen differently in the suburbs. A lot of our growth now is coming just more in like middle of the middle of the country in the suburban neighborhoods. And we've kind of seen an interesting diversity of how people are using Sweetgreen and a lot of success in just having a little bit more of a diverse, diverse portfolio of restaurants overall. I would say the second thing is what we're hearing loud and clear from our customers is they, uh, they are looking for more options for Sweetgreen at dinner. And so what's a big focus for us on the culinary and marketing team is how do we create products that are a little bit heartier, a little bit more filling, a la la Harvest Bowl, and make sure that we're relevant at uh, the dinner day part as well. Yeah, I'm not surprised by that. I think you're probably much more of a, I don't know what your hours are in all your stores, but much more of a 24-7 thing than you used to be before the pandemic. Correct. So of all the roles that we just talked about, which one gives you the most energy and which one doesn't, if any, if it does, if one doesn't? I mean, I've, I've been on a yeah. couple of boards. Not all that work is fun. You know, you know it's, I, I do have an interesting role because I've been a founder and essentially, you could say, a board member for 16 years. Mm-hmm. And I never was a trained marketer. I never went to school for it. I had to learn by doing. But I think inherently, well, I know inherently every founder has to be a marketer. They have to be good at sales. They have to be good at telling stories. They have to be able to go to raising money, which is inherently marketing in itself. And so I fell into the role of CMO or chief brand officer, really because I love our mission and being able to create amazing stories around it. And our formula is really, I always say, starting with the best ingredients, using data to really understand who our customer is, and then using human creativity to tell great stories around food. And I would say to your question, that's my favorite part, is the creativity around storytelling and how it's evolving and how people's relationship with food is evolving. And when we started Sweetgreen, we, uh, we always joke that we saw the food companies that had the best marketing were traditionally the ones that were the most unhealthy. And we said, how do we do something similar, but for healthy food. And so we've spent the last 16 years 
really focused on connecting food to lifestyle, food to culture, and doing it in a way that built community, but also kind of took a playbook out of bigger fast food and connected it a, a little bit more to lifestyle and, and mainstream culture. You've built, you know, a, a differentiated, and I, at least from what I see, a pretty loved brand in a tough category, right? Where you have a lot of money being spent. And you seem to have done it with not a huge investment in traditional marketing. So, and you're, you're the chief brand officer. You say that's what gives you energy. What could others learn from your 16 years of building quite a brand without the marketing that we see from your competitors in the overall food category? Well, first, I would say it's a, you have to think long-term. I always tell founders that if you're going to start a company, especially in the restaurant business, it's a 10-year commitment because it takes a while to build a brand that has really high loyalty. And I think any company, but sometimes I hear a lot of founders trying to build something for two years and try to sell it. And I feel like that's, it's always not, I don't think that's the right approach to build the right type of company or right type of brand. Um, I also think that there's a lot of ways when you're starting a business to think more about brand building and entertaining the world versus marketing the world. And we've just focused more of our time on things that generate earned media versus things that are around paid media. Uh, we've threw a big music festival as an example for six years in Washington, outside Washington, D.C. We had The Strokes, Kendrick Lamar, The Weekend Play, and it was really our way of building a lifestyle platform that could extend beyond just food. Uh, we've worked with chefs and the world of culinary to kind of show that even some of the best chefs you know, eat healthy and, and make that their type of cuisine more accessible. And, and recently we've worked with a lot of famous athletes. And so it's really just figuring out what the brand stands for and finding ways to generate more earned media than paid media. So when you and your co-founders, you know, uh, started the company and you, you at some point decided to assume three different roles, right? Yeah. And you said you, you know, your energy is with the chief brand officer. Tell me about that process. Was that difficult? Was it easy? You know, you, was uh, this obviously, this sounds like this was your first choice, but take us back to the room where you, you three decided yeah, that I we, will, I'll yeah. take you. <laughs> I would say the year is 2007 and we were deep in writing the business, like writing, finishing the business plan, raising money. We were still in college and there was three of us and, you know, we kind of looked at each other and we said, the opportunity cost of starting this company now versus a few years from now is it's much lower because it's easier to fail when you're younger and we didn't have any jobs. And I don't know, we, we all also had parents that were all first generation immigrants that kind of gave us the permission to try something that was a little bit more entrepreneurial. And so what we give them a lot of credit for just giving us the permission to do that. And we all started as kind of just, we didn't really have titles in the beginning. We were just co-founders, the three of us. We did every job. I mean, we worked, we essentially worked in the restaurant for the first entire year that uh, we had that store on Georgetown. And I was cashier and Nick was, you know, station one and John was, you know, outside doing marketing. And so we were 
we were all kind of just in it. And I think the beauty of the relationship was the fact that none of us had any experience. None of us were a technical co-founder. We didn't have any, I don't know, previous ideas of how to do this. And so we, we all kind of grew up in the business together and surrounded ourselves with just experts in the field. And we all became, over time, we, there was three co-CEOs. And it was it was more of a formality than anything else. It wasn't like there was huge distinctions in the roles. And then as we got bigger, I think in 2017, we decided that the company was at a, a stage where we definitely needed to almost own spheres of influence in the company. And so at that moment, uh, John, my co-founder, became CEO. Nick really focuses on our food and culinary roadmap. And I kind of took over marketing, creative, and the brand. And the three of us have a, have a really interesting partnership. We still sit in the same office. We spend a lot of time together. Our wives joke that we prepared each other for marriage. So, so we, uh, <laughs> we have a pretty strong bond, but we also have a, a ton of trust and respect for how each other runs their portion of the business and almost operated kind of like a family-run company. And I think that's what's that's truly special about the partnership that we have. It's unusual, you know, 16 years, the same three, you've gone through starting a company, taking it public, and, you know, you've just affirmed everything I've sort of read and heard that you're strong friends, your wives are strong friends. And uh, so tell us what makes that work. I mean, it's the kind of environment all of us would like to be in, right? <laughs> yeah. I would say it just starts with trust. It really starts with mutual trust and a shared passion for trying to do what we set out to do originally. And yeah, there, there are moments when we have disagreements and when we don't you know, debate certain decisions, but it's, it always comes from a place of what's best for Sweetgreen versus what's best for the three of us. And I think it's that filter for decision-making that's really kept the bond strong and also sustainable. I think a lot of times, you know, this is this is my first business partnership. It's our first company. It's our first job, and so we've been really intentional about knowing what we know and knowing what we don't know. And every year, the three of us take like an annual offsite or some type of time solo, just the three of us, to recognize the things we did well and also recognize the things we didn't, and just make sure that we keep that time for ourselves to to really course correct or invest more in the places that are, are working. And I think it's just this combination of casual interaction during the day with more kind of these like moments of time where we can connect that are outside of the outside of the day to day as well that really help keep it going. So once a year you go away the three of you and it's just three of you and you just kind of review how it's going and what's working, what's not. Re reaffirm your vision. We actually just did this in January. Three of us went, brought food, cooked our own dinners for a few for a weekend, and sat there and just talked. We kind of turned off our phones, turned off our email, and and just took stock of the journey and and the things that we just need to improve on and and do better, and 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 also just use it as a moment to kind of hang out and and have some fun. Yeah, sounds good. How's the relationship changed? I mean, you're, you're all you're all 16 years older. You're not in school anymore, but how has it evolved in these 16 years of working so closely together and building 
you know, an amazing brand. Yeah, I would say that it's it's definitely evolved. We we have to imagine the three of us, two of us lived together, one lived across the street. And that was the very beginning. And we would walk to work and about the company and and now all of us have families and you know different uh, obligations and i definitely think it's we have busier lives outside of sweet green which i also think is a good thing to mm-hmm. kind of create some balance some boundaries but i think what hasn't changed is just our energy level right? you know I, I think that's that's even as the company gets bigger we we almost feel more and more energized to continue with our mission and we see the opportunity and we see the customer reaction and and how we were able to be a small part in their lives. And that gets us really excited. And I think even though our, our personal lives have gotten a little bit busier and our obligations outside of work, what remains the same is the same energy that we had as founders when we started the company. You went public, I think, about two years ago, right? Yep. How has that changed anything in, t- in terms of what you work on, what they work on, the vibe in the company? Yeah, going public is is definitely was a milestone, but not something that we focused too much on. We mm-hmm. we always thought it was a step in the journey of Sweet Green, not the final step. And yeah, I think it's it's definitely been a huge learning experience for us as founders, for us as a company. And I think the volatility in the market is something that we've also j- the way that we've kind of addressed it is just being as transparent as possible. We as founders just believe in like over communicating the things that are happening in the market or trying to talk about the the wins and the opportunities in the business and going public just puts, it puts more pressure, but it also puts, I think, the right type of constructive pressure on prioritization and the things that we need to do. I feel like pre-IPO, we were kind of focused on doing a, a lot of things and and I feel like now we're focused on doing less things, but bigger and better. You have an incredible board. I was looking at the characters on your board and I saw Young Me Moon is on your board, the Harvard professor. Yeah, she's been on there for a while. Yeah, she has. She was doing a book about when I did my first book. So we kind of exchanged notes back then. Actually, our, we had the same publisher and agent. So I got to know her through that process. And I loved her book. It's, it, you know, the one different. It's about, mm-hmm. probably about 10, 10 or 12 years old, but it's a lovely book. So having a board obviously is a different thing. What what have you learned about being a chief brand officer working with the board? You know, I was I was actually at P&G, of course, and my board was, you know, if leveraged right, massively helpful yeah. in counsel, advice, um, someone to talk to. Uh, so could you speak a little bit about, I mean, two years now you've had a board, how has that helped you be a better chief brand officer? Yeah, our board, I have a ton of respect for them and just grateful that I get to work and, and connect with them very frequently. I would say my experience with the board kind of happens in two different ways. One is at the board meetings themselves. So as a collective group, I feel like me personally, and I think us as founders, we get a lot out of the discussion, the decisions that we make and a diversity of experience that is able to kind of shape something, shape an idea that may have been 85% of the way there and having them in the room gets us that last 15%. And that's been really helpful and, and supportive. The other way that I've really loved working with the board is actually just one-on-one. 
So Young Me, as you mentioned, has been really instrumental in, in just helping me think bigger and in a way that can just change frame of reference on storytelling, campaign building, building community as a whole. And we actually met Young Me right when she came out with that book about 10 years mm-hmm. ago, I think we're in 2013. And we were just, just really impressed by the way in which she was, how she articulated how great companies work and, and what makes them successful. And, and it's those one-on-one conversations over the years when maybe you're feeling stuck or maybe when you just need a little bit of advice that I really appreciate from, from our board and personally as a marketer, because they're able to kind of spend time with you one-on-one, which is a very special and magical time. Now let's go back to when this concept of sweet green first happened. You were all at Georgetown. Tell us a little bit about people talk about starting companies, starting businesses. A lot of people don't follow through with it, but you did. What was the, what was that conversation? When did you kind of tip it over from chatting about something to actually pursuing it and deciding that's what you're going to do? What, what was that conversation like? Was it an event, a person, uh, a particular night you went out and had a glass of wine together or what was it that kind of tipped it? So we were seniors at Georgetown and I remember John, the three of us were, weren't actually best friends. We were close, but we all kind of had our different friend groups, but we were the friends that always had these business ideas and we were just throwing them around. And I remember walking down M street one day with John and we would go to Chipotle a lot, but we got to a point where we couldn't eat it every day. And then there was a Dean and Luca across the street, but that was way too expensive for us. And we were just chatting through you know, being from California, is, is there a way to create something that was healthy, affordable for college students, but also kind of fit our values and, and what we wanted. And, and on our walk, every single time we would go off campus was this green little tavern that we would walk by. And we essentially just, we wrote a business plan. This is the end of 2006. And it had four pages in it. It was a cover page. It was uh, executive summary. It was one page of financials and then picture of furniture. So it was it was very <laughs> light business plan. And to be honest, we actually even took it to some of our professors and advisors at the school. And we got a lot of, I can't look at that. I don't want to be responsible for you failing. Ooh. And so we were kind of a little bit on an island. Mm-hmm. We did have one professor, entrepreneurship professor at Georgetown that was really helpful and somebody that, I don't know, almost like our parents gave us permission to do it. And so we started writing the business plan. We finished it. We fell in love with that first location on M Street. We, we ended up signing a lease, getting an architect. All This is all in the course of three months. And we started construction and we thought that was going to be kind of easy. We thought we were going to graduate. We were going to have this restaurant built and all of our parents and people would come visit us during graduation and come to the opening. And of course, the restaurant was two months delayed. It was way over budget and it was the middle of the recession, start of the recession in 2007. So it was a really challenging time, not only as first-time founders, 
but with no experience and in the middle of what was going to be a big recession uh, in the restaurant business. And so we, we ended up opening our, our doors August 1st, 2007. And I mean, everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. Like the, it started raining and all the green paint started going flowing <laughs> down the street. I remember we had magnetic menu boards that we'd created and there was stainless steel on the wall and they weren't sticking to the stainless steel. Our yogurt machine at the time wasn't working. And so it, it was really just the moment of problem solving. And I think that was the first time we really felt the, the difficulty, but also the growth of starting a company and feeling of feeling super tired and not knowing what to do, but also kind of embracing the unknown and really just stepping into creating something. And yeah, we opened our doors somewhat successfully on August 1st, 2007 and, and have been kind of committed to that dream ever since. When was the moment that you thought you had something that could go national, maybe international? I think when we, we opened our first restaurant in New York, we actually, we opened New York and Boston 2013. So call it six years after we opened the first one. And we had restaurants, we had about 18 locations in DC and Philly. And we were really nervous to open in New York because there was a lot of competition, you know, the rents were more expensive. And we spent a lot of time, especially on the creative and marketing side of almost starting over and, and pushing ourselves to think about how do we truly differentiate the company? How do we make, how do we make it look and feel different than what, out, what other the competitors are doing? And, um, and how do we show up differently in a city that is notoriously really challenging for, for startups? And so the focus was a few things. One is we actually hired a brand new architect. So an architect that had never done restaurants before, they did more kind of, I would call it like bigger, like fashion brands and retailers. And they forced us to kind of strip down the experience and focus everything on the colors of the food versus the colors of the wall and the furniture. And we created a bit more of a modern approach. Um, it had, I remember that, that store in New York had, uh, it had bleacher seating and stadium seating and it, it converted into a stage so that we could have events and local music kind of come perform inside the store. And it was really about creating a great food experience, but also building a lifestyle around that restaurant. And so once we opened that store and the one in Boston, we saw the customer reaction, the line out the door. And that was kind of the moment that at least for me, we could make this a much bigger thing. Was there ever serious doubt from when you opened the first store? I mean, of course, the startup issues, et cetera. But did you ever lose your conviction as a set of three founders that this thing is really going to make it? Uh, all, yeah, definitely. There's There's been a lot of those moments. And I don't know. I feel like just threshold for pain has gotten... You think what's changed? Definitely a threshold for pain uh, has just gotten much stronger. But I go back to that very first winter that we had in DC. So we opened 2007 in August and December of 2007. You have to remember we were only serving salad and frozen yogurt and it was freezing outside with no seats <laughs> in 500 square feet. Yeah. And so we had very little business. I think our sales got cut in half. And it was the first time we we almost didn't make payroll. And I remember Nick, when Nick and I were sitting in my apartment and this is, we had a stack of these invoices, these almost like old school produce invoices that were this high. 
we were trying to teach ourselves how to use QuickBooks mm-hmm. and input invoices and doing all the things and realizing that if uh, if things didn't turn around and kind of in the the rest the you know, rest of the winter early spring that we would probably have to shut it down and um, and and I think it those are the moments that you just have to be really persistent and confident that you can get through it and that's the biggest lesson of any I feel like any business owner I'm sure a lot of CMOs and is there is a level of survival that you can only learn by doing but once you get through those moments they're they're truly explosive and magical because they help define the kind of the rest of your career and I think that having those as as, as scary as they may be and as uncomfortable as they may be um, really help as you get get bigger and have that experience well you're bigger now and you have a marketing group that's probably quite a bit bigger than it was back in 2007 when it was pretty much you so could you talk a little bit about i think this is always fascinating when you start a company from scratch i mean how have you how have you built a team in marketing where did you start what was the first you know kind of person or kind of capability you thought you needed to add to the company. So kind of walk us through your thinking and building up marketing from you to whatever it is today. So first marketing hire was an intern uh, from Georgetown, who I still keep in touch with. And what I feel like I've had a lot of success with is hiring young, hungry talent that really believes in our mission can get their hands dirty and can almost act like they're like their own entrepreneur. That's that that's kind of the filter in terms of how I hire people is Sweetgreen is is still, even though we're 200 restaurants today, we, it's still very much a we we approach it like a young company and very entrepreneurial, but it takes a certain mindset where you can thrive off a little bit of ambiguity. You can thrive off having a li- less budget. You can be, you kind of come alive when you become scrappy. And so I kind of like that younger kind of energy in terms of experience. And so over the years, the positions that I've always thought have been the most impactful have been great brand thinkers, people that kind of think outside the box when it comes to storytelling really great creatives, whether that's full-time or freelance, and then really thoughtful UX designers and just designers as whole, people that kind of kind of help take their pen to the brand and, and not just aesthetic design, but also like content and narrative design. But over the years, I've really kind of tried, I, I don't really believe in having a huge marketing team I think having a core group of really solid A players, people that are really, really talented and have a lot of passion for the brand and then supplementing those people with outside help when we need them, specific project-based work. You know, the world is now very much remote and freelance. So a lot of the great talent is out there. And so very much keeping the core team in-house, but also leveraging kind of a hybrid approach to new talent. How would you describe the culture of marketing at Sweetgreen? I mean, it lives, lives in a larger culture, of course, but how would you describe it? I would say it's, it's really rooted in creativity. And everything we do 
has to either entertain the world, make people laugh, or feel smart as a piece of work. And it all starts from almost, it almost starts with like a mindset, right? It's a mindset of creativity versus, and the work will be good. And so my job and what I, what I like to do is just create the right environment in the world of creativity for the team. And I think it's really easy and we're guilty of it too, but you kind of get stuck in hamster wheel of meetings and the next project and, and different KPIs and metrics, which are all really important, but trying to find and hold space for creativity and, and the freedom of making mistakes and, and having ideas that maybe we won't do, but helps create another idea that we will do. And, and just using, providing the right canvas for, for some of those, some of that thinking is really important. You have quite a growth mindset at the company. I was looking at your, some of your public filings and your growth plans, your store openings, uh, your revenue plans. It's quite a, quite an aggressive, positive, ambitious set of goals. Is there anything, Nathaniel, about marketing of the company that you think needs to change to achieve that? I mean, you just, you just described the culture within marketing. Yeah. You're talking about the, the overall company culture. You have something very special here, and scaling something that's really special is never easy, right? So, so what what has to what has to change? Do you think as you have this aggressive plan, and what can't change? Yeah, scaling anything is very challenging, and I think scaling special is almost counterintuitive when you think mm -hmm. about it, because as you as most companies get bigger, especially food companies, you kind of get worse almost. And our push to ourselves is that as we get bigger, how do we continue to get better? And it's, there's no blueprint for it. It's not easy. And we, we kind of, we have this mantra in Sweetgreen is how do we create intimacy at scale? And as we continue to grow and, and in terms of marketing, there are two big focuses for us uh, and for our team. And one is, what I'm calling crossing the chasm of craveability. And I feel like at Green, you kind of know that it's a healthy place to go, tastes great, the ingredients are good. But how do we really, if we're going to com compete with larger fast food and, and be, some, be a company that's a little bit more for everyone, how do we make sure that when we add new items to the menu, people actually also perceive Sweetgreen as starting with taste and flavor and filling versus just healthy and salad. And so that's a big focus for us is as we evolve our marketing, um, making sure that that people understand the flavors and the, and the culinary integrity and just like the deliciousness of the food uh, first. And then, oh, on top of that, it's healthy. And so that's that's been a really fun challenge and, and opportunity for us. And the second thing, which I'm really excited about is bringing back a lot of the community initiatives that we used to do pre-COVID. When the pandemic happened, the lights kind of turned off for a lot of companies. And we, we used to do a lot of work in communities, whether it be impact events or dinners or experiences or even music festivals. And, and so bringing back a little bit of that IRL power and the power of just like building the right types of tribes in the neighborhoods that we're in, because it's, it's still, even though Sweet Green's bigger, the best way, like one of our, like our best channel is just through our restaurants and word of mouth. And so the more that we can support our store teams, our head coaches, 
with the right type of tools, education, community support, that that's the power of the brand. So uh, really excited for the next few years. Let's switch to the creative brief to close out this wonderful chat. And my first question is your parents are immigrant entrepreneurs. What did you learn from them that has helped you in starting and starting to scale Sweetgreen? The power of persistence and the power of humor. I love that. Sense of humor is critical, right? Life can be hard. If you can laugh yeah, about it when it's hard, it makes it a lot lighter. Yeah. And, and telling great stories and, and being able to, to just make people smile. I've heard you say that being naive has helped you and your founders throughout this whole process. What do you mean by that? And do you feel like you're still naive? Yeah. One is, I don't think we've ever, we would ever do Sweetgreen or start the business if we knew what we knew now. So if that's a lesson is, I feel like you get to a point when, when you're doing anything and you've studied and you've studied and you just get to a point where you can't study anymore and you kind of have to take the test. And I feel like that's what entrepreneurship is, is, is you got to get to a point where you have the self, self-confidence and the self-awareness to just, just jump. And uh, I think that's, that, that's really important in, in many businesses, but um, it's a big lesson that we learned early on is I think that the fact that we didn't know everything was one of the reasons why we did it. And, and now that we'll, we've kind of evolved that thinking at Sweetgreen, even today, we call it beginner's mindset. You know, it's like, how do we, how do we just always have that almost like childlike wonder to the things that we're doing, having a beginner's mindset and, and not just doing the same things over and over again, because they kind of the things we just did. And if the world and the pandemic and how generations are changing or any signal of how things you have, how you have to adapt, you really just have to have that childlike wonder and sense of a beginner's mindset to really win in this new world. What's the first brand you remember making an impact on you growing up in LA? Stussy. I don't know if you know yeah, Stussy sure. is. It's a clothing brand. I was uh, big into surfing and skating and hugely impactful for me. So you're a surfer, skateboarder? I surf. I'm not very good, but I like to get out there and go surfing. Who has been the most inspiring person in your life? I would say my grandmother because she, she really was somebody who was really good at listening. and. Because of it, she was really great at knowing when to do the right thing, when to say the right thing. She was almost like, she was one of the best gift givers too, because not in a financial way, but in terms of a way of giving her gifts because she just knew you so well. And I think there's people in all of our lives that around us that are just really good at giving gifts because not because they're expensive or because they're big or fancy, but because they just know who you are as a person. And uh, I learned that early on from her. I was talking to a company about their interview questions for new employees. And this one company said, we always ask, what's the most meaningful gift you've ever received? It says a lot, right? It says a lot. It says a lot. Both given and received. It says a lot about who you are. So who would you like to hear on the CMO podcast? Who should we bring on the show that because you reached out to me on LinkedIn to say you like the show, you enjoy it. Yeah, I did. I, I'm, I'm a fan. So I don't, have you ever, I don't know if it's a CMO, so maybe it's breaking the rules, but 
uh, Dave Lee at Squarespace has been a good friend of mine, mentor, and he's a chief creative officer, so yeah. he's not CMO. Yeah. But I think he does a lot that just pushes the our industry forward, and I uh, would love to hear from him. Love it. Okay. We'll see what we can do. And I'll give you the last word. I've been on g- giving you a barrage of questions here, Nathaniel. Anything for me before we sign off? No, this was amazing. Thank you for uh, hosting and creating the space and just uh, for the thoughtful questions. And I remain a huge fan and hope to meet in person one day. I would love that. All the best to your team. Keep it going. I'll be following closely and I'd love to meet you at one of your stores soon. Let's do it. Let's have a harvest bowl together. Have, I, I skipped lunch today, so I'm, I'm really hungry. So I wish you were within arm's reach here, but we're not. I'm in Cincinnati today. In New York, it's a different story. But someday. Someday soon. Thanks, Jim. That was my conversation with Nathaniel Rue. Three takeaways from this one for your business brand and life. The first one is all about culture. This was a beautiful discussion about building a fantastic culture. Nathaniel talked about being involved in every hiring decision, where he spends his time is on team building, having a beginner's mindset as you approach every day, the power of creativity in your culture. It was a beautiful discussion on building a strong, attractive, magnetic culture. Second takeaway, it takes time to build a brand with strong customer loyalty. Nathaniel said when they started this brand, they realized they were in it for the long term and it would take a minimum of 10 years to build the brand. They understand what kind of brand they want to build very, very deeply, and they take the time and the patience to build a brand. It's a good lesson for all of us. Last takeaway, I love Nathaniel's take on technology and automation. Sounds like a scary thought maybe in the food business. It's not at all. The way he and his team are approaching automation and technology is to make the customer experience way better, make the product experience way better, and to open up some resources so that people can be closer, even closer to their customers. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.